person in the room. I was early in my career and serving at a great local church in Ottawa, Illinois. I was in my early 20s, like 22, and they put me in charge of the youth group. Not only did they put me in charge, they were actually paying me to do this. Now, lots of kids come out of college. Side note, I'm old enough now to actually call college kids, kids. And when they come out of college, they think they have it figured out. I certainly did. And then I got a job. I remember hearing a guy talk about being a youth pastor, and he would gather the parents together and say, before he had kids, here are three great ways to have relationships with your kids. Then once he had kids, he would meet with the parents and say, I don't know, here's like a hundred things to try. That's about right, isn't it? I'd been there long enough, and at this point, I'd recognized that I didn't really know as much as I felt like I should to be the youth pastor, let alone to give parenting advice. I didn't even have kids, so to tell parents how to raise a teenager, I felt completely inadequate to do. Now, understanding my lack of knowledge, I decided to form a council of sorts with other parents and volunteers of the youth ministry to figure out how to run the youth ministry more effectively from their vantage point. We would plan activities, we would talk about the retreats coming up, what messages should we preach, what themes should we talk on, on and on. This way, I could grow in this area and really get their perspective. I remember my first meeting with these folks. We had lunch, we had some good laughs, and then I started in on the agenda. We had some great conversations going around a certain activity that the youth group had done for years. One lady at the table was a diehard proponent and super passionate about this this, uh, project, and the five other people were not. Though they had done this year over year, the attendance of the students had continued to drop, and though we had nearly 100 students who would come on a week, there was only five or six who would attend this event, and three of them were hers. So the debate went back and forth for a bit, and everyone in the room was being extremely kind and cordial, recognizing that this was a passion project for this lady, though they didn't really get it. After about seven or eight minutes of conversation that they'd all been uh, debating on, they stopped, they looked at me and said, well, pastor, what should we do? Now, I remember the weight of this moment so vividly because it was one of the first times I recognized the power I actually had. I knew that whatever came out of my mouth next was going to be quote-unquote gospel, so I had to choose my words very, very carefully. I didn't want to hurt this lady's feelings, but I knew the right decision to make. And how do you navigate those moments where you have power in your words that can literally affect somebody both positively and or negatively? There comes a moment in the life of every person where you will be the most powerful person in the room. What will we do when we're in those moments? You may hear this and think, yeah, right. When would that possibly happen to me? Well, here's some obvious examples. You get a promotion at work and you get a title where you're the new boss. You're a leader of the congregation or your youth group or a small group at church. Or maybe you're just simply the one in the meeting with the most experience. Or maybe you're being consulted by a customer about what they should do next. Now, these are all obvious examples, but there's also some not so obvious examples where you are the most powerful person in the room or in the conversation. For instance, when you're a parent with your kids looking up to you or maybe even stressing you out, 
You have all the power. Now, how are you going to respond? How are you going to wield it in those moments? Your spouse has done something and they're asking you for forgiveness. You have all the power. How do you respond? Your friends are going through a hard time and they're asking for advice. They know you know Jesus and you have the power. How do you respond? You're the only one in the room with a relationship with Jesus, no matter the situation. And someone is sharing a terrible, terrible thing. Everyone feels helpless, but you know what to do. How do you respond? This power is a real thing. We often think of it as something to wield to get our way, but Jesus modeled for it a different way. John 13, 1-17 says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I love that sentence. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So listen to that sentence again. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. So Jesus is not only the most powerful person in the room, he's the most powerful person that ever walked on planet Earth. So what did he do? He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had wrapped around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, Well, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, Well, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. You are, And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Hear that again. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. What a moment. Jesus again, the most powerful person in the room. And he washed his feet. So let's unpack this a little bit further. And here's a few things from this story that always stick out to me. The story starts off again with Jesus knew he had authority over everything. And I keep saying this, but it's amazing. Jesus had authority over everything. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. But Jesus literally had the power to do literally whatever he wanted to in the entire world. He had the most power anybody's ever had in that moment. In the moment, any moment of humanity, Jesus had in that moment right there. But with that great power, Jesus chose to wash the feet of his disciples. Not only did he just wash their feet, but he disrobed into the outfit of a common slave of the day and started washing their feet. Someone with power would never do that. They would never lower themselves to that standard, but Jesus wasn't just anyone. 
He washed their feet from a lowly position. In fact, the lowest position you could attain. I have to imagine the disciples were pretty freaked out watching this. I mean, in these moments, they were probably still expecting Jesus to be a governmental ruler who would overtake Rome and overtake the world and rule in that fashion. So for him to do this would have been totally mind-blowing. Then Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? I think the short answer here is no, they did not. Especially after the exchange with Peter, it's clear that there's a gap in understanding. But then he says, do as I have done to you, because no slave is greater than his master. Wow, what a statement. Again, the climate of this moment was that Jesus was going to ascend the political mountain of the day and be a hero to all. That he was going to grab the biggest titles and be famous. But instead, he's modeling servitude. He's modeling being a slave. He's making the point that it's not about serving himself or being famous or powerful, but about serving others. The titles don't matter to Jesus. Jesus sees us as his kids, not as a role or a title. When it comes to having our identity in Christ, this is critical. Earning a better title doesn't elevate you in the eyes of Jesus. Getting demoted, losing a job, or going through a divorce doesn't lower your station in the eyes of Jesus either. You're his through and through, and no label moves the needle at all for him. He loves you, period. And Jesus says, now that you've seen it, go and do it. The expectation of the Father is that he modeled the way for us to do it. Does Jesus expect me to strip off my clothes? <laughs> no, but he does expect you to strip off your titles and your pretensions and to serve others. He does expect you to strip off your expectations of others and serve them. He expects us to stop trying to be impressive and just to serve. What does it look like to wash the feet of those around us? Well, it looks like recognizing the power that you have and yielding it to the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't pretending like he didn't have power. He was just letting the Holy Spirit dictate how he used that power. Living in the kingdom of God means that sometimes acts of service, like washing feet, display more power than any miracle or anything else ever could. Now make no mistake about it, when you have Jesus, you are the most powerful person in the room. I had really always been impressed with titles in my life until I learned a lesson in a really unique way. I was getting my master's degree and I was taking a program on strategic communication and leadership. There were people from all over the country that had signed up for this program and they all had very impressive titles. There were somebody from the Secret Service, somebody that worked in the White House. There were big pharma representatives, uh, executives from NASA, from uh, Verizon, big phone companies. And then there was a friend I met whose name was Luis, and he was the global TPM manager for Heineken. Now, if you don't know what that is, short version, it's a very important job. And he was the global representative, but he was focusing his energies currently all over Europe. Luis was extremely smart. He was from Puerto Rico, and he spoke multiple languages and was just uh, somebody I instantly uh, became good friends with. Uh, after the first night, we flew out to Seton Hall University where this program was through, and uh, we all sat uh, in the hotel all day together talking uh, in conference rooms, learning things. And then that night, everyone was meeting at the bar. Now, I uh, was a pastor at the time, and so hanging out at the bar wasn't something I was normally accustomed to, but everyone asked that I would come down anyway because they figured out that that wasn't my norm, and just to hang out with them and get to know people. So I went to the bar, and I was sitting 
uh, with some folks from the program, and they all left, and Luis approached me. And uh, it was pretty clear that Luis had had a few. And as he and I were talking, he just looked at me and said, so you're a pastor, huh? I said, yeah. And he said, man, I used to go to church. I said, really? He said, yeah. And then he starts crying. Now, it's not uncommon for people to cry in front of me. I don't know what the deal is with my countenance, but I make a lot of people cry. And uh, Luis was no exception. But in that moment, I was surprised. I did not think this is the way the conversation was going to go. And he put his drink down on the table and he put his head in his hands and he was, he was really crying. I mean, close to sobbing. And I said, well, what happened? And he told me a very long story, but the short version was he and his wife were very uh, um, involved in the student ministry of his church. And then ultimately um, he had done some things to hurt his marriage and she had left him. And he walked away from church. He walked away from faith and he decided that, you know, he didn't want that in his life anymore. And he said, I want to go back, Matt, but I just don't know if I can. And I said to him, and I don't know why I said this. I think it was the Holy Spirit. But I said, you know, Luis, you're pretty miserable right now. And he said, yeah. And I said, and I'm honestly just going to pray that the Lord makes you miserable till you go back. Because you know what you need to do. You know the right thing to do. And you need to go back and do it. So he said, well, can you pray something different? I said, no. So it was kind of a weird exchange. And we both kind of chuckled, but he knew I was right. So we went away, and this, this program uh, was all remote except for three times that we met. The first time was for the orientation, which is when that conversation happened with Luis. The program was 18 months, so about nine months in, we had our midterm uh, conversation, and we all flew out to Seton Hall again. And I was there, and I saw Luis, and he came up to me, and he said, Matt, you have to stop praying for me. I said, why is that? He said, well, I was in Europe the other day, and I was taking a cab uh, to the to the plane, and the person in the cab was listening to Christian music. And then I uh, asked him to change it. And he said no. And then we got on the plane. And the person next to me read their Bible all the way uh, from uh, France to Amsterdam. And after I got off the plane in Amsterdam, the cab driver in Amsterdam, which is one of the most godless places on the planet, was listening to Christian music again. He said, I can't get away from this. God is all over me. God won't leave me alone. And I said, Luis, he loves you, man. He's not going to leave you alone. I said, you know what you need to do? He said, I know, but I just can't. I said, yeah, you can. You can do it. You know, and I'm here with you, man. If you ever need anything, let me know. And so time goes on and he checking in with Luis every once in a while. And he's like telling me he's in the same spot, in the same spot. And then I get to graduation day and Luis comes up to me, gives me a big hug, weeps on my shoulder. I said, what's going on, man? He said, I gave my life back to Jesus, man. I feel so good. I'm talking to my wife again. She's willing to forgive me. There's hope. And I just was so overjoyed. And I looked at this man who had one of the most impressive titles of anyone I knew. And he was just a man. He's just a human. He's just going through the stuff we all go through. And I remember leaving that graduation ceremony and I went back home and I sat in a staff meeting with my, with my uh, staff at the time. And I started telling the story and I got done. And then another pastor shared about how that weekend he was up in uh, Northern Illinois at a uh, homeless ministry and that these men graduated from this homeless ministry and they'd all profess faith in Jesus Christ and they were all going from being in jail and then homeless to now being productive members of society and making an impact for Jesus. And we just looked at each other and we're like, isn't that amazing that I spent my weekend hanging out with these people with these huge impressive titles and they just needed Jesus. And you spent your weekend with these guys who used to be homeless, but they found Jesus. 
and our lives now are, are equal. And I remember in that moment, just having this realization that God doesn't care about titles. God doesn't care about the things that we care about. He doesn't care about earthly power. He cares that we just look for the opportunities to serve those around us and to lead us as his kids back home. So there I sat in that meeting with my youth group leaders talking about what should we do. And as they looked at me and said, what should we do? I recognized the moment. And as everyone looked at me, I prayed silently in my head. And then I asked the volunteer who was very passionate about this project. I said, this seems like something you're really, really into and really matters to you. Why is that? Why does it matter so much? She started to get emotional and talked about how much that event had meant to her as a kid and how every time she did it, it just really gave her a picture of who Jesus was. And it was a really cool story. We all, we all kind of celebrated. So, wow, it's awesome. You know, thanks, thanks so much for sharing that. And then she paused and she said, you know, I know that it's kind of outdated. I know that it's really not going that well. I know that these, these kids really aren't showing up to it. And I get it. But I just want our kids to have meaningful experiences. And someone else at the table said, you know, we all, we all want that. And don't you think they are in other ways? And they all started talking about all the ways that they've seen students in our student ministry encounter Jesus over that year. She's like, wow, yeah, I guess, you, I guess you're right. And she said, you know, I love seeing what God's doing here. And I'm okay if we don't do that activity anymore. I know I've been holding on to it, but I'm okay to let it go. Now, I don't want to feel exaggeratory here, but in many ways, that felt like a holy moment. It felt like a moment where she could have dug her heels in and said, no, this is the thing. And it was a moment where I could have just stepped in and said, no, we're not going to do it. And we could have canned the event. But as this whole thing unfolded, the group proverbially washed her feet and walked her through this moment. We saw her heart soften and the right decision unfold. So how's your heart today? How you feeling? You have the power. You're in these moments right now where you are the most powerful person in the room. You have these moments where your opinion matters more than anybody else's. And people are looking to you and they want to know what it is that you're thinking and feeling. And they're going to walk in it. They're going to agree with you and they're going to do it. So are you using that for your gain or are you using that to wash their feet? Father, I'm thankful for this story. I love it so much. It's so meaningful to me. And I pray that those listening today at this podcast, uh, it would be meaningful to them too. And it wouldn't just be something that we would listen to and think, wow, that's profound. But we would say, no, just like you asked us to, we're going to go out and do this. We're going to model the way. I pray that we would today. I pray we would be feet washing modelers all over the world, that we would go out and look for opportunities to love and to serve people, no matter their station and no matter our station. We would honor you and bless you in this way. We thank you so much, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much again for joining us this week on the podcast. I don't know where you're listening from, but I'm glad that you are. And I pray it would bless you and help you. And I pray that God would just continue to pour into your life in new and refreshing and beautiful ways. Have a great week.